Well, praise the Lord. It's good to be here with you this evening. Um, tonight, I want to invite you to open your Bibles, and we'll be as quick as possible, to Philippians chapter 2, a very familiar passage to most of us. And uh, we're going to investigate, and we're going to dwell into this passage a little bit, and sort of, you know, I think with with Christmas and the theme of Christmas being around, I wanted to kind of uh, maybe demuddle. I was talking to Malcolm and Aaron about how Christmas, the idea of Christmas has kind of got muddled up. And we want to kind of break it down and we want to get an understanding of what the real meaning of Christmas is. What is the real meaning of Christmas? And uh, It was kind of brought to my attention uh, I was not long after Thanksgiving, a couple of days after Thanksgiving, and I started thinking about it. And uh, Bethany approached me and said, Dad, um, uh, we need to start celebrating Christmas. And I was like, OK, um, we are. You know, we'll put up the lights and we'll get a tree and stuff like that. And she said something to the extent, well, Dad, we need to do more than just put up lights and get a tree. We got to celebrate Santa Claus and, you know, all those other things. That everybody else celebrates. We've got this in our mind and it's in our culture. Last night I was at a Christmas party and it was just a gluttonous, hedonist form of corruption that just kind of disgusts me. I just don't really like all of this. All right. I mean, I like I like the I like, you know, some of the traditions that we have and I like it in the tree and all of that. But just the whole you know, I think it's just because I'm a critic. I'm very critical about things. And it's a very good time. Don't let me spoil your Christmas, by the way. OK, I don't mean to do that. But I hope to maybe regain an attention of what Christmas is all about. You know, at Christmas, we're confronted with the difficulty of celebrating the reality of Christmas from the clutter that surrounds us. Is this Can I get an Amen. Okay, I've been hanging out on a reservation. They say, amen. We got one guy in the back. That's all he does. Says, amen, amen. Right? So you're allowed to do that, I think, right? But it is cluttered, isn't it? Do you agree with me? It is cluttered. I got a little, some, uh, I think this would be an antithesis of Christmas or the celebration of the incarnation, because that's what it is to the believer. It's the celebration of the incarnation and our current idea of what Christmas is. It has become a hopeless, this guy says, it's become a hopeless muddle of confusion. Listen to this. The humility and the poverty of the stable are sometimes confused with the wealth and indulgence of selfishness in gift giving. The quietness of Bethlehem is mingled with the din of shopping malls and freeway traffic. The soberness of the incarnation is somehow mixed with the drunkenness of the season. Blinking colored lights somehow have a connection with the star of Bethlehem. The room in the inn, an obscure, dirty, little, meager fare, somehow embraces the thought of a warm house and a fireplace with huge feasting. Cheap plastic toys for the kids, you know, to spend their time playing with is, is mixed with the true value of the gifts given by the wise men. Salesmen somehow get mixed up with the shepherds. Angels are confused with flying reindeer. 
one of which has a red nose. The pain of childbirth is mixed with or mistaken with parties. The filth of the stable is confounded with the whiteness of fresh snow. He says, and then there's Mary, Joseph, Perry Como, Bing Crosby, and all the rest. <laughs> That's what it's really become, hasn't it? And it's for the believer's responsibility to get it back into perspective. And I contend with you today that the great reality of Christmas is the glory of the Lord revealed in the incarnation. And we're going to talk about that in this very familiar passage here. The scenery that we're going to talk about is not the stable. It's not Bethlehem. We're going to talk about something a little more meager. In Philippians chapter 2, what we see here is the reality of the incarnation. And by the way, this is one of the greatest texts in all of Scripture. This is foundational to the believer's life. Philippians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 11. One um, theologian or writer, he said that the passage, this passage is oceanic for the fathoms are countless and the tides are measureless in its depths. It's huge, Philippians chapter 2. When we look at these verses, we're going to see how God steps into humanity. We look at these verses and we're going to see, we're going to look, I'm going to go real quickly, so I want you to kind of try to stay with me. I may take a few more minutes. I think it's important for us to do this. As God steps into humanity, we're going to look at five features of God Five great aspects of the incarnation. The first thing we're going to see is that the Lord Jesus Christ abandoned a sovereign position. We're going to see that he accepted a servant's place. He approached the third thing. He approached a sinful people. The fourth, we're going to see that he adopted a selfless posture And fifthly, we see that he ascended a supreme prince. So look with me at Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, and we're going to look at verses 6 and 7 and read along with me. It reads like this. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant. And we'll stop right there. We find in this verse, and particularly in the beginning of 7, that we see here that the Lord Jesus, or in the the beginning of verse 6, we see that the sovereignty of God is described. It says, who being in the form of God. And what does that mean? Who being, and we're going to take a few words and just look at those. The first word I want to do is says, who being in the form of God, being, the idea of being. What does the word being mean? Well, ultimately, being means the, the essential characteristic of who we are. It means an innate quality. It means something that you cannot change. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like men. Men are always men. You can dress them up differently. You can change certain things of their features, but they are all still the same thing. They're breathing, their hearts are pounding, 
Blood is throwing through their body. They will always be the same thing in their nature. Right? So when we look at this word being, being is an essential nature of what it is we are talking about. And in this particular passage, we have to go back to um, uh, verse 1. It says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. He goes on in, um, in, verse, in verse 5. Let's go to verse 5. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So the subject of this being, when he says who being, is Christ Jesus. And he's describing the nature, the inequalities, the unalterable things of Jesus Christ. So he says the being, and this is the basic truth of the Christian principles. You know, in Hebrews chapter 1, it says that he has spoken in these last days by his son, who is the brightness of his glory, the expressed Image, the express image of his person. And in Colossians chapter 1, it says he is the image of the invisible God. So the word being then has to do with his essential nature. Jesus Christ has his being marked in the form of God. Let's look at another word here. Now we see here it says that who being in the form of God. Let's look at the word form real quick. Now, we're going to kind of have to, when we look at that, we probably for a lot of us, you think of form, you think of the outward appearance, you think of the shape of something. But in the Greek word here, the word form is morphe. Okay, it's it's more, it's not the outside, it's the inner being, it's the deep, inner, essential, abiding nature of something. So the scriptures say, here say, who being in the form. It's his essential nature. It's who he is. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it says, Whom he foreknew, them he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. It's the morphe. It's the same thing. It's the inside. We are being conformed. So when we look at this word form, we're talking about an essential nature. Right. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18, it says, as we look on the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into his image. It's the inner being in Philippians three, verse 10. It says that I may gain Christ and become conformed to his death. So he's talking about a deep inner representation of the image of God. On the other hand, we have another word called schema, which is not here. That's going to be down in verse eight where it says, uh, and being found in the appearance as a man. That has to do with the outside of a man. It has to do with the, the, the appearance, the, the outer part of a man. Second Corinthians chapter 11, it says, Satan fashions himself as an angel of light. He is not an angel of light. He just makes himself to seem like an angel of light, right? And then we see here in First Peter Uh, Chapter one, verse 14, it says, as Christians, do not fashion yourselves according to your former lust. You are not like that anymore on the inside. You're not like that. So don't act like that on the outside. So that's the idea of schema or scheme. And that's where we get the word the scheme of things, right? The shape of things. Okay. and these both of these words, morphe 
and schema or schema are found in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, stop being fashioned according to this world, but be transformed in your inner man through the renewing of your mind. So one is deeply related to the internal working. The other has to do with the external. And when the, with the one that we're talking about regarding the Lord Jesus Christ is his internal being, who he is. He is truly God in nature. His essential being is that he is God. That is substantially and essentially his deepest, innermost being, who he is. And that's what we, we find here in um, this section. Consequently, let's look at verse 6. Again, it says he did not think he was it says and he did not think it was something to be grasped, to be equal with God. Okay, who being in the form of God in the New King James, it says, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. There's two ways of looking at this, this section of Scripture. The fact that he didn't seem it seem robbery to grasp or or to hold on to. Something, you know, in Isaiah chapter 14, Satan says, I will, I will, I will, I will. He says, I will five times. And essentially what he's talking about is I will be like God. I will be something that I'm not. I will grab it. I will. I will be like him. He thought it was something to grasp. He thought it was something to attain. And that's one way of looking at it. And there's another approach that we can do. It means to clutch or to snatch, to grab something tightly and to hold on to it as if it could get away. Jesus didn't think it was something to snatch or grab or hold on or something to clutch. He didn't have to. Why? Because he already was God. And I know these are not new things for our understanding, but at Christmas we want it. Get a clearer. We want to clear up the cobwebs. He didn't think. It was his internal. It was who he was. He didn't have to grasp it. Look with me in verse 7. It says, but made himself of no reputation. He made himself of no reputation. Another way, another way of saying it is, is, is that he emptied himself. And I'm going to touch here, and then we're going to move a little bit faster. I want to camp here a little bit. He emptied himself. This is where you get the word kenosis. He, he emptied himself. Now, I want you to understand something. What I am saying right now, okay, is, is that what Jesus did when he entered into humanity is that he abandoned his sovereign position. He abandoned his sovereign. I am not saying, I am not saying that he abandoned his deity. He could not abandon his deity because he's God. If he were to abandon his deity, he would not be God. He cannot abandon his deity. He was God. That's who he was. So I'm not saying that. Don't confuse me. What I am saying is this. He abandoned a position that was his, a sovereign position that was his. What is it that he abandoned? What did he empty? What did he give himself? You know, people have a lot of ideas. There are people who have said he abandoned his deity. 
He left who he was. You know, there are some who say he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Some people try to say that, that he abandoned his, he ceased to exist. He abandoned his deity. He can't. He cannot do that. But the scriptures clearly go through and tell us, the New Testament will tell us what he actually emptied himself of. And I think it's good for us to understand this. And there may be more, but I have like about four of them that I want to talk about real quick. And I think the first one is the most common one to us. He emptied himself of his glory. The first thing he did was emptied himself of his glory. And in John chapter 17 and verse 5, as the Lord Jesus began the, the, uh, to pray and to teach the disciples, he prays to the Father and he says, And now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. If he needed to be glorified with something that he had, it means he didn't, what? Have it. He abandoned the effulgence. He abandoned the glory that was truly his. Another thing that he abandoned was he gave up his honor. He gave up his honor. The scriptures are clear. Isaiah says that, says that he was despised. It says that men didn't, he was nothing to look at. They plucked at his beard. They spoke, they mocked him. He was spit on. He was defamed. He was dishonored. He was discredited. He gave up his honor. Another thing that I think he did is that he gave up his riches. And I love this. The scriptures tell us. Third thing he gave up was his riches. Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine says he who was rich for our sakes became poor. What poor, poor that we through his poverty might be rich. What an amazing, what an amazing thought to think that not only did he give up his glory or in his honor and his riches, he also gave up a very favorable relationship with the father. He gave up a favorable relationship and he did it only in a moment of time. When we hear him say, father, why hast thou forsaken me? Only in a moment of time he did it. But he lived through his whole life with the anxiety of knowing that he would ultimately have to position himself that way. He gave up his special relationship with God. He gave up his riches. He gave up his honor. He gave up his glory. He emptied all those things out. And yet he continued to be God. Amazing. Amazing the mystery. I can't consider it. I can't figure it in my, in my own head. But it's true as the scriptures declare that to us. So we see that he abandoned a sovereign Position. Another thing, the second thing I want to look at is the fact that he accepted a servant's place. He accepted a servant's place. Look in verse 7, the second part of verse 7. It says, it says, taking the form of a bond servant. He took the form of a bond servant. When he became a man, he didn't become a king. He didn't become some wealthy person. He took the form of a bond. So notice it again in verse 7. He wasn't just acting like a servant. Okay? He took the form. There's that word again. Morphe. Every little intrinsic part of humanity. Every part that we have. All that is within us. He took it on himself. 
He was truly a servant. He took on him the inner essentials and the nature of a servant. He became a real servant. He became a real servant, a true servant, and a genuine servant. In Luke chapter 22, 27, he says, I am in the midst of you as one who serves. In Mark chapter 10, he says, The Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. In John chapter 13, we read that beautiful, and we have that beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus with the disciples as he takes his towel off. And what does he do? He washes their feet. He came to serve. We see him in service all through his life, all through his humanity, he served. He served his father. His father invited him to come to the world as a servant to work out his plan of redemption. <laughs> and he willingly, he willingly became a servant. Truly, he abandoned a sovereign position and he accepted a servant's place. The third thing is that he approached the sinful people. He approached the sinful people. It says there in verse 7, and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man. He approached the sinful people in his perfection. He was willing to be a servant to the Father. In perfect harmony with the Father, he was willing to be a servant. And the service meant his life would be here on earth. He couldn't do it from out of space. He couldn't do it from some faraway place. He couldn't do it from heaven. He had to enter into humanity. He approached a sinful people. The idea is not that he was created. Look what it says here. And coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man. It wasn't that he was created. He always was. It says here, and being it says right here, it says, and being found in the, or it says, and coming in the likeness. Coming in the likeness. The idea is, is that he was, it wasn't that he was made. It, the idea here, it, from the Greek word ginome, it means becoming. In other words, he always was in existence, but he became something. He became something. That's what the idea here is. You know, it's, it's saying that, that he was becoming, look at this next, ver, next verse 8, and being found in the, or, or I'm sorry, in verse 7, and coming in the likeness of men. He was becoming the same as men. He was in every sense in the sameness as men. He was a genuine man. He, and I guess I might say this, he was more of a man than you or I could ever be. He was more of a man than you or ever. He was just like you and me. Essentially, internally, everything. Except for one thing. What was it? What was the thing that he didn't have that we have? Sin. The one thing, sin. But that doesn't make him any less of a man. It's a matter of fact, I think it makes him more of a man. And you kind of think, is it possible to be a man and not have sin? But think about it. Adam was a man, and he was born without sin. And if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? One day you too will be without sin. So he was just like us in every part. He was a man just like us, except 
There was no sin. Look at verse 8. He was also found in the fashion of a man. Not only was he a genuine man, deeply and truly in his nature, he was all that man could be. He also took on the outward form of a man. And here's the word that we already mentioned, the word schema. It's the outward form of a man. He didn't come in the first century with a 20th century language. (laughs) He spoke like they spoke. He ate the food that they ate. He walked the streets that they walked. He hurt like they hurt. He cried. You know, there's a, there's a hymn in one of the hymns that says, The little Lord Jesus, no crying He makes. I don't think so. If He cried as a man, I'm sure He cried as a baby. You know, He was just like us. It was, it was by personal experience that He adapted to the outward manifestation of time in which He lived. Just like you and me. He had brothers and sisters. Did other people learn a trade? He learned a trade. Were other men at times hungry? He was hungry, wasn't he? Forty days he hungered. All those things you experience, he experienced. So when we look at this passage, we see that he abandoned the sovereign position. He took a servant's place. He approached the sinful people. He became one of us. You've heard, I told the, I'm not going to tell you it because we've run out of time. You heard Paul Harvey tell that story. Have you heard that story? Paul Harvey, he talked about the man who was not a believer. Can I have a couple extra minutes? And I'll just tell it quickly. He, he was not a believer. He wouldn't have anything to do with Christian faith. However, his family, they were, they were saved. They were believers. They loved the Lord Jesus. And it was during this Christmas time that they had left to go to the chapel to worship their Lord. And as he was sitting, a storm, a snowstorm, it was up in the Midwest, a snowstorm, it blew in. And he heard a thumping. So he goes to the door and he opens the door and there's nobody there. And he looks around, he doesn't see any. He goes back into his chair, he sits in his chair and he hears the thumping again. Thumping and he pays attention. Finally, he realizes it's at his window. And he looks and there's a group of birds that had gotten disoriented. And they saw the glare and the warmth of the window. And they were trying to get in. And they kept hitting the window and hitting the window. And he goes out and he shoes them away. But they got disoriented and they kept trying to get into the warmth and the light. And he tried to shoo them away and shoo them away and he wouldn't go anywhere. So he goes in his yard and he has a big barn. He opens the barn doors. And he even takes a trail of bird seed and puts it on the ground and shoos the birds away. But they keep going and hitting the window and hitting the window. And he thought to himself, if I could only tell them to go to the barn where it's warm, where it's safe. If they would only, if I can't, if I can only tell them, but they're birds and I'm not. I don't speak the same language. And then he thought to himself, well, if I became a bird, I could tell them. Paul Harvey says at that time he realized what the real meaning of Christmas was. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what it means when it says, when, it, when we read and we, we understand here that he abandoned the sovereign position he had. He took on the form of a servant and that he approached a sinful man. And the fourth thing is, is that he adopted a selfless posture. Look at the rest of verse 8. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, 
even the death of the cross. How humble was he? How humble. And by the way, I think this is the theme of Christmas right here. The humility that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. He humbled himself, verse 8 says. How far did it go? Well, he became immortal, right? He became immortal just like you. He also became obedient, it says, unto death. He became, Hebrews tells us that he learned obedience. The greatest act of obedience to the Father, we understand, was dying. And that was God's will. It was God's will that he would die. We, we know that story that he came into this world to die. He was obedient to the Father. And not only did he, was he obedient to the point of death, but it goes on to say, even the death of the cross. You know, there are people who write about that death of the cross, and I don't like to dwell there, but it says that to die, the, they say that to die the death of a cross is like to die a thousand deaths, to be held by four Nails, four pieces of nails holding you up as all your organs begin to suffocate, as you struggle to get your next breath. It's to die a thousand deaths. And not only that, it was a shameful death. It was a shameful death. Here, it was reserved for the vilest of offenders. And this was the obedience that he had obeyed in. Incomprehensible humility. The one author writes, but what's so marvelous is that even in his dying, even in his dying, even in such a depth of, of suffering, inhumane suffering, he still wielded the power to redeem humanity. You know, there's another little story, and I'll tell you this, and then we'll get to the last part, about a soldier who went to battle. And defeated with his sword, defeated a whole army. And it was told the king that this man went to battle and defeated the whole army. And the king says, well, bring me that sword. I want to see that sword. And so the soldier went and he got the sword and he brought the sword to the king. And the king looked at the sword. He said, this is just an ordinary sword. Take it back. And the soldier said, well, you should see the arm that wields that sword. We look at the Lord Jesus in His mere humanness. How can such a human being save humanity? Well, you should see the deity that wields that man. Amen. What a wonderful, wonderful expression of humility we see. I think that's the theme of Christmas. Humility. And finally, we see that He was ascended a supreme prince in verses 9, 10, 11. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. This is the great classical spiritual truth that we need to understand. Humility first and then exaltation. Humility first. We're so busy trying to puff ourselves up. Trying to make ourselves so strong. That's not how the Lord worked it. It was humility first. We see it all through the Scriptures. 
Jesus said it himself. He that humbleth, he that humbleth himself shall be what? Exalted. We see it in the Beatitudes. We see it all through the teaching in the Gospels. We see Jesus in, as he, in his baptism. There's a humility. John says, I'm not worthy to baptize you. And then we see the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Humility and then exaltation. That was God's reaction to his humility. God exalted him. He gave him a, no, a name above every name. And it says here, you know something? Every knee shall bow. And this is more of, this is the broad aspect of it. Every knee shall bow, it says. And it gives a list of the knees that are going to bow. It says, therefore, to him, he'd given him the name above every name, that every name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven. Those in heaven will recognize Jesus is Lord, that he's God. Of those on the earth, they will say, he's God. Those under the earth, the demons under the earth, Satan himself will one day acknowledge that Jesus is God. The broad aspect is that every knee shall bow. But then he goes and it gets a little more personal in verse 11. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Something a little more personal. It brings it personal to us. Every tongue confess. In John chapter 10 verse 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Right? Every tongue confess. You know, how could you reject such a wonderful gift? God stepping out of eternity. God abandoning His sovereign position. Adopting, accepting the form of a servant. The very God of heaven. You know, whether you confess Jesus as Lord now or later is up to us, right? That's up to us. But this particular passage, I think, is written to believers. It's written to believers, and we have to kind of backtrack. As we go to verse 5, it says, it's, or actually we go uh, in verse 1, it says, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort, if the fellowship of the Spirit, and any affection and mercy... Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. So the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned these words. He was dealing with a situation where there was selfishness and self-centeredness. And he was giving them some instructions. And then he comes in verse 6 and he says, By the way, let me give you an example. Let me illustrate what humility really is. This is a message for Christians. This passage is written for Christians. The whole passage here. Let nothing be done, it says in verse 3, through vain 
strife or vain glory. You know, people often ask around Christmas time, what is God trying to tell me? What, what is God trying to tell me through Christmas? Is there something that God is trying to tell me? Well, I think when we look at this passage, we know exactly what he's trying to communicate. He's communicating, be humble. Be humble. Be lowly. Just like the Lord Jesus Christ. I've given you this illustration. I think the point of Christmas is right here. There's no better time of the year than to teach the lesson of humility. The character of Christ, he was unselfish. He was giving. He was humble. He was condescending. And the Apostle Paul, he's challenging the church in that day with this perspective. And I think he challenges us even here today. He's challenging us today. The thing we need to learn is not to always be asserting ourselves, defending ourselves, pushing ourselves up, but to be humble and selfless. I think that's the message of Christmas. What a great illustration that he's given us here. He's saying, let this mind be in you. That's the message of Christmas. Selfless, selfless. That's the message for us. The message of humility. Father, we thank you for this illustration. The greatest of all characters in the Bible that reveal the mind of God is found here. That would be the Lord Jesus who humbled himself. God and fully God. And yet he adorned humanity in its fullness so that he could redeem us. Honoring the will of the Father. We thank you, Father, for the privilege we have of considering it how it provokes our hearts and our minds to worship you and to love you and to embrace during this time of such sloppy mess, the muddled confusion, how it helps us to reestablish what it means when Christ entered the world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.